You are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Joe. I'm Scott. And this week we welcome back Laura Knight Yadchik. Welcome, Laura. Hi, I'm here. Well, there are a couple of things we'd like to talk about this week. Before we go on, I'd like to just make a comment about something I said in a previous podcast that was quoted back at me. I said something along the lines of, uh, if you don't smoke, start. And I'd just like to uh, modify that by saying that, you know, not everybody should smoke. Some people shouldn't smoke, but some people should. So I didn't want anybody to feel obliged by what I was saying uh, to start smoking. That's just the record. Thank you for that, Joe. I was concerned some people were asking me whether they should start smoking. Well, we, we, we get those kinds of questions all the time, and, and indeed some people should smoke and some people shouldn't. Yeah. It's just my previous statement was kind of a blanket statement that everybody should start smoking. Well, obviously that's But it was said in jest. Yeah, but, you know, it's hard to tell. It's, it's really interesting that you can uh, almost gauge the freeness or the freedom of a society by the lack of anti-smoking legislation in that particular grouping. Well, yeah, I mean, my point, what I, what I should have said was, as I said already, some people should smoke, some shouldn't, but everybody should try. If you don't smoke, try and smoke. If you don't like it, then don't smoke. If you like it, smoke. But the point is, people don't get that opportunity to try smoking. People who have never smoked nowadays... They're, they're never going to start because there's, there's, there's so much anti-smoking propaganda out there. They're never going to start. So the point is, everybody should have, the, should have the freedom to try, and if they don't like it, don't do it. Yep. Not only that, but they should have the freedom to breathe clean air, and the fact is that cigarette smoke has very little to do with the pollution of the atmosphere and the industrial waste and depleted uranium and the other evil things that the uh, industrial military complex put into our breathing space is what's really causing cancer and making people sick. We should do a podcast on this subject. Yeah, why don't we? So, listeners, tune in soon. We'll, we'll 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 cover this one thoroughly. We'll bring you the latest research. We'll give you some some real stories, experiences of real facts people. and data. You can quote back to your anti-smoking fascist friends. Exactly. All right, so what are we going to talk about tonight? So as I was saying before Joe's clarification, this week the Pentagon has finally released two very short video sequences that they claim show the Boeing 757 crashing into the Pentagon. We want to discuss that a bit. And we'll also be talking about the Da Vinci Code the Da Vinci Code has opened the Cannes Film Festival this week. The film version was very poorly received. We want to set the record straight on the Da Vinci Code as well. Well, the interesting thing about the uh, the Da Vinci Code and the Cannes Film Festival and the release of the so-called Pentagon video is that it just so happened that this very timely release from the wonderful fascist government in the United States came about exactly one day before the Cannes Film Festival opened. And it just so happens that our Pentagon Strike video is entered into the Cannes Film Festival, not not into a competition, but it, it will be shown at the film festival. 
And we find this to be extremely interesting in light of the various other events that have happened in relation to this little video. Because certainly uh, it was in response to the Pentagon flash, which has now been seen by over 500 million people, that the, uh, the big movement to debunk conspiracy theories began in the U.S. Now, up until that point in time, debunkery consisted mainly of just vague dismissal of conspiracy theories without any specific designation of any particular conspiracy or any particular conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so as soon as the Pentagon strike flash came out, within, oh... When when did we publish it? Does anybody remember? It was the end of August. Yeah. End, end of August. So 2004. 2004. Right. So what, it was on September 11th, wasn't it, that AboveTopSecret.com mm-hmm. came out with their... Uh, with their uh, uh, evidence that a Boeing 757 Yeah, evidence that a Boeing 757 did hit the Pentagon, which was completely debunked in Joe's Flying Fish article, as we refer to it. And... Uh, uh, just shortly after that, uh, the Washington Post contacted us for an interview. We we did an interview, and of course, they referred to us uh, directly as uh, you know conspiracy-minded individuals or conspiracy theorists. So we had essentially baited the bear out of his lair, and there was direct mainstream media attack on this video, which is something that no other conspiracy theory or any other group has managed to accomplish thus far to bait them out. So this this tells us one very important thing, that this is something that they really, they really don't want us to go there. So not only did they launch a full frontal attack, they also began using the uh, famous counterintelligence maneuver of suggesting that anybody who considers that a Boeing 757 did not hit the Pentagon is just falling into a, quote, honey trap, unquote. A honey trap being, of course, a situation where you buy into a certain line of thinking and then it is totally debunked later on and then you're made to look like a fool. Well, if anybody really thinks that any of the 9-11 truth-seeking slash researching is going to go anywhere at all with their pressure on the controlled demolition ideas or that Flight 93 was shot down over Pennsylvania, etc., you know, forget it. It's not going to go anywhere. The only thing that ever will really go anywhere is pressure on the Pentagon issue because the Pentagon is the weakest link in the chain. Absolutely. And we have proven it once again by the fact that they have come out with a full frontal assault on this particular idea. They don't worry enough about any of the other ideas to think that they even need to come out and rebut or or attack it. But this one really gets them going. This one really makes them nervous. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was because of the exposure that the Pentagon strike flash video got that they were forced to come out because they realized that that one of their worst nightmares had, had come true, and that was that the ordinary person in the street and large numbers of them as we said, 500 million plus, were getting access to information that hadn't come to them via the mainstream press. And that's really dangerous for them, and that's why they had to come out and control it, get it, um, or pitch it within uh, a major mainstream tabloid or or a newspaper like the Washington Post. They had to deal with it. Everything else, as you say, is completely ignored. 
by the mainstream press. That's how they do it. Well, that's that's because the, the, the situation surrounding the Pentagon is so obvious to to the mind that wants to think logically. You can talk all day long about controlled demolitions, and there will always be an equal number of experts to say that, well, you know, under this and that circumstance or whatever, you know, the building could have fallen exactly that way, even though, you know, even though there's uh, the famous Silverstein quote uh, that he said, well, let's pull it, you know, re- referring to building number seven. But nevertheless, they can they can trot out all their experts and they can rebut anything that is said. However, if they are obliged by, you know, outrageous demand from the American public to submit the Pentagon situation to a truly fair and open and independent uh, investigation, there is there is nothing that uh, that they can say because there is no evidence that a 757 struck the Pentagon. There well, is that, plenty of evidence that something else did, <clears throat> and I'm not talking necessarily a missile here either. One of the emails that we get most often from readers about the Pentagon strike and our, our views on the Pentagon attack is if no Flight 77 hit the Pentagon, then where did Flight 77 go and what happened to the people on it? For me, this is what kind of sets the Pentagon apart from the World Trade Center, part of 9-11, in that it's almost like people subconsciously have this awareness that there's something very disturbing about the Pentagon. And it's not even, I suppose it's not even subconscious, but this is what... Uh, the impression I get is that this is what disturbs people to ask this question because they know that if it can be proven that... Um, they have to face the fact that their government really did away with... Yeah, there's something citizens. an awful lot more insidious about it. You know, it's... Yeah. Um, because when it's, you... It's peop- the people died in, 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 in the World Trade Center. They died when the, when the planes hit the, hit the building. And but was, you saw that the planes, you know, hit the building yeah, and that's what caused them to die. It, so there's, it's almost like there's closure on the deaths of those people because people were able to see how they died. Right. But by saying that Flight 77 didn't hit the Pentagon, there's no closure on what happened to those people. And then and you have scary. to face that very, very unpleasant question, what did happen to Flight 77? Where did it really land? And what happened to the people that were on it? And did all of them die? Or just some of them? So all of the uh, all of the interesting details and and ideas about what did happen to Flight seventy seven and who was behind it are in our book nine eleven the ultimate truth which can be obtained from qfgpublishing dot com and uh, we uh, we think we have some some pretty good ideas that come very close to solving the great mystery of the Pentagon, which is the weak link, and it's obviously the weak link because this is the one thing that the powers that be have a real sore toe about. Whenever you get close to this one, for some reason, they feel like they have to do something to divert it, to attack it, to reject it, to, and there is no other conspiracy theory that scares them as badly as this one. I mean, they never even came out... Uh, on the JFK assassination with any kind of direct attack on conspiracy theorists. I mean, e- even after Oliver Stone's movie, they didn't have to. I mean, they could, they could ignore those things, ignore them, and they would go away because there were in- infinite numbers of experts who could say anything they wanted, including that a magic bullet did all the crazy things that that magic bullet did on that day. Same thing can be said about 
uh, collapsing buildings. But what it can't be said about is the fact that it is impossible for Boeing 757 to have struck the Pentagon and have done the damage it did, to have not left any wreckage, to have made the size hole it made, to have had such confusion among the witnesses. And keep in mind that the witnesses, many of whom were witnesses who clearly had a vested interest in supporting the government story, and others were those who were in such a state of shock that it was easy to suggest to them anything and have them believe it and remember it as a fact, as any good psychologist will explain is what happens in traumatic situations. We should also point out that Donald Rumsfeld himself referred to, and I quote, the missile that hit this building in an interview with Parade Magazine one month after the Pentagon A little Freudian slip there. And furthermore, there are three other videos that the FBI confiscated very, very shortly after the attack on the Pentagon, one from a service station, one from a hotel, and one from the Virginia Department of Transportation that all had cameras focused on that area, and those videos have never been shown. Well, I read somewhere, I, some, sometime today, somebody wrote me an email, and they were telling me that there were 80-some videos that were listed as being in the government's possession that related to the Pentagon. And someone else had mentioned that Washington is, is a city that normally has a lot of tourists, and tourists generally have cameras. So one wonders if many of these 80 videos are videos that were confiscated from tourists, if they were immediately out on the street finding anybody with a video or anybody who contacted them said, I have a film, whatever, and that these people's videos were confiscated and they were silenced. What is really distressing is to know that you know you have this this handful of uh, so-called witness testimonies. These witnesses have never been forensically examined that we know about. They have never been you know checked for the veracity of their claims by an independent body. They have just basically supported the government line, and it's been let go at that. The whole thing just stinks to high heaven. There was no 757 at the Pentagon. That's the bottom line. But that brings us back to Khan. As I said, it just so happens, in a coincidental manner, that the Pentagon Strike video is being shown at the Cannes Film Festival. We have our own little crew of Quantum Future Group members down there schmoozing with the stars in Cannes and taking photographs, preparing a nice photograph album for everybody, for all of our readers to, to view when they come back, and shaking the hands. Maybe they'll get to, you know meet and greet some of the big stars and of course maybe they won't but at least they'll have a good time it's a it's a nice town it's uh it's got a beautiful view over the mediterranean and and we're real pleased to have our our little independent filmmaking group down there hanging out with the big boys next year and the thing is the pentagon strike has probably been seen by more spectators than any of the films that have ever been 
entered into the Cannes Film Festival or oh, that's ever will the truth. be. And, and, and obviously it's been seen by more people than have read The Da Vinci Code. I mean, 500 million is, you know, and it's probably higher because remember that, that figure that we, when we did the count, that was what, six, eight months ago? It was a long time ago. So it's probably gone up into the, you know, six, seven hundred million and people keep passing it around. And believe it or not, some of, some of us and, and our friends and neighbors and family, you know, get copies of it in their emails and they send it to us and say, gee, look what's, uh, look what we just got and we say yeah we know we did it <laughs> so it's it's uh it's been around the world a few times at this point and it really strikes a chord in the hearts of everybody who sees it because their logical brains the part of the brain that analyzes what their eyes see and what they what they know to be possible and not possible understands a great truth that no 757 hit the Pentagon. And what's fascinating in the news reports of this most recent video release, over and over again you see news reports that say this video shows the Boeing 757 hitting the Pentagon. And of course if you study the frames, that's not at all what it shows. It shows this white blur that approaches the Pentagon, you see. It shows absolutely nothing other than what we have already seen, what we have already been exposed to for the past five years. I mean, that's that's absolutely it. There is nothing new, nothing, absolutely. And yet the mainstream media with their major headlines and their, you know, oh, the release of this video, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what a maneuver on the day before the Cannes Film Festival when our little gang is down there. I mean, we should feel honored that we are getting such special attention. <laughs> so anyhow, back to Khan and the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code. I hear it's not getting very good reviews. Is that so? That's what they say. There were even snickers in the showing before the press when it came to the big climactic scene. Yeah, and there was an article where they said, you know, usually at the Khan Film Festival, you know, the critics are pretty harsh and and so, but at least at the end of the showing of these various films, uh, there's at least polite applause. And apparently, at the end of the first showing of the Da Vinci Code, uh, there was just you know jeers and snickers and you know whistling and no applause. Not a so surprise. The book was really bad. Well, I, in one of the reports I read, they said that at one point, at uh, a serious point, a point that was meant to be serious in the film. But the crowd, the audience burst out laughing. It was prolonged laughter at a serious point in the film. And I, like, the I, like, I like to think that that's the point when, uh, in the book, when the, the great secret of the kind of Haros Gamos is, is revealed. Oh, and, my and, God. And, and what it's all about. I no. like to think that that's... Oh, yeah, that the ritual a, sex act. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have a bunch of We're going to get into that. The point at which the snickering came is when Tom Hanks turns to Audrey Tattoo and says, You are the last surviving descendant of Jesus. And that's apparently when everybody started to snicker. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> there is a reason that, that people have been have been excited by the Da Vinci Code, and it's not because the Da Vinci Code so much gives the answer. I mean, in a, in a way, it's, it's kind of like, you know, that, the Pentagon flash video doesn't give you the answer of what happened to Flight 77, but people can see that there is something there that strikes their logical mind, you know, that part of their mind that uh, has been overtaken by the programming of the mass media and the dumbing down of the, 
you know, the global educational systems. And that is that there is something wrong with Christianity. And that Christianity clearly and obviously can't be what people purport it to be. I mean, for example, when you consider the fact that in this day and time, um, there are there are classifications in the DSM for the the manual of psychiatric illnesses that refer to you know anybody who hears a voice or you know thinks that they get messages or whatever as being you know psychiatrically sick. They need to be treated in some way. However, there is a line in there, I believe there was in the, in the I think the DSM-3 at least, it said that, this, that they were excluding religious inspiration from this category. In other words, under any other circumstance, if you hear voices or you think you're getting messages from, you know, from other beings or whatever, in any context except religious, you are certifiable. You are ready to be locked up and put into a straitjacket, possibly, and medicated. However... If it's religious, you're presidential material. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a problem. And here we are in the 21st century, and people still believe they're going to be raptured, that a man who lived 2,000 years ago got crucified and died and rose after three days and then some number of days later uh, ascended to heaven and clouds of glory with angels etc and that he is going to return on said clouds and he is going to open wide his arms and of course he's going to be wearing the regimental blue and white robes and have the the long flowing locks and beard Mm. and they are all going to ascend into the sky leaving their clothing and whatever behind I'm sure they'll leave their fillings in there not their wallets (laughs) Well, so in the 21st century, people actually believe that. Well, the funny thing, just if I can interject here, the funny thing about um, the whole Cannes Film Festival and and the Da Vinci Code being shown there is something I read in uh, in a report where there are apparently a lot of um, religious groups that have descended on Cannes to basically stand in opposition to the Da Vinci Code. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, they're handing out pictures of the Virgin Mary, etc. And there was one uh, person who was involved in this, a uh, religioso Christian, uh, fundamentalist Christian or Catholic or you know, devout Catholic, whatever, who was saying basically that uh, it was asked for her opinion on the Da Vinci Code and she said, you know, it's okay, it's a film and stuff, but the problem is that we're, it's, it's distorting the facts. Right, so obviously you can imagine what facts she had a, had a problem with. Now, it just seemed to me that it was perfect for whoever wanted to, to completely immerse humanity in nonsensical disinformation and, and, and you know fantasy in a religious context. This is they've achieved it because they have two groups of people, large numbers of them, arguing with each other, and each of them have these two ridiculous theses, and, and both of them are claiming that each that each of them holds the facts of the of the matter. Well, the failure of the, both the Da Vinci Code and Christianity is the idea that both approaches take the biblical story of Jesus as historical fact. And neither of them really understand that it is not a historical fact. And this has been proven in biblical scholarship. There is a, uh, a wonderful book 
that was published recently. I wrote a review on it. It's on the website at uh, www.cassiopeia.org. And if you go to the site map, you will find a link to a, an article entitled The Book of Q and Christian Origins by Burton Mack. And the thing is, is that Q is short for the German word Kel, which means source. Kel, or the Q source, is considered to have been the one of the two sources for Matthew and Luke, the other being Old Mark. But the unknown lost source is called Q. I write in this article, while this subject comes up under the subject heading of Q hypothesis, since the discovery of the Gospel of Thomas, it really isn't a hypothesis anymore. More and more books are indexing Q as the Sayings Gospel, and the first layer of Q is known as Q1. So, Burton Mack tells us that once upon a time, before there were Gospels of the kind familiar to readers of the New Testament, the first followers of Jesus wrote another kind of book. Instead of telling a dramatic story about Jesus' life, their book only contained his teachings. Their focus was not on the person of Jesus or his life. They were engrossed with the social program that was called for by his teachings. Their book was not a gospel of the Christian kind, a narrative of the life of Jesus as the Christ. It was a gospel of Jesus' sayings. The book was lost to history somewhere in the course of the late first century when stories of Jesus' life began to be written and became the more popular form of charter document for the early Christian circles. He goes on to tell us that the mythology that is most familiar to Christians of today developed in groups that formed in northern Syria and Asia Minor. There, Jesus' death was first interpreted as a martyrdom and then embellished as a miraculous event of crucifixion and resurrection. This myth drew on Hellenistic mythologies that told about the destiny of a divine being or a son of God, and these congregations quickly turned into a cult of the resurrected or transformed Jesus, whom they now referred to as the Christ. The congregation of the Christ experienced a striking shift in orientation away from the teachings of Jesus. After this, then, of course, the narrative gospels began to appear. But the important thing is is that what they're saying is, is the, these Hellenistic stories were the basis for creating the life of Jesus. If you read Mac carefully, you will come to understand that Jesus probably wasn't Jewish. He probably did not have anything to do with the, you know, with a revival of the Jewish religion. He most likely was was a Greek or a, or a Hellene in some way. And most likely he was a a philosopher of the Cynic variety. One of the popular ideas about Jesus is that he was an Essene. And, of course, Mac, with the Q document, shows that this is also a, an incorrect hypothesis. Yeah. So if you come to a little understanding about uh, the fact that the Q document, the underlying layers of information within the New Testament itself, can reveal to you a great truth about who this individual was around whom the Jesus legend was wrapped, you, you can get a broader understanding of exactly what it is the Da Vinci Code is driving at. Because when you read that these, these uh, stories that were wrapped around Jesus were Hellenistic mythologies, you come, of course, to the dying God 
mythologies. Now, these these myths have been with us for millennia, literally millennia, and they relate in a large part to even older esoteric doctrines that had to do with with a type of, well, shall we say, a psychological or a spiritual death and rebirth. And in the oldest uh, esoteric doctrines, the the story of of the you know the birth of the child from the virgin related more to the birth of the true self from the death of the old man you know to have put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ as Paul would have written it and he was talking in in esoteric terms he wasn't talking necessarily about uh, about a literal uh, death and resurrection but getting to the da vinci code here we have an interesting a bit of information. Graham Phillips is an interesting guy. He writes some interesting books. He uh, he does some fun research and finds out all kinds of fun things. Uh, I, I just don't necessarily agree with the way he interprets it because he there are certain pieces to the puzzle that he is missing. But in any event, he wrote an, uh, a little book called The Marian Conspiracy, which is subtitled The Hidden Truth About the Holy Grail, The Real Father of Christ and the Tomb of the Virgin Mary. And in this book, he tells us about his his uh, conversation with uh, one of the people who work in the uh, Vatican's secret archives. And he says, Father Rincinelli had written to me a few months earlier following the Italian publication of my book, The Search for the Grail. I had investigated the historicity behind the Grail legend and had arrived at a controversial conclusion Today, most people think of the Holy Grail as the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper, but I had argued that the term Grail was originally applied to any holy relic that was thought to have been associated with Christ. Well, this is true except for the fact that the Grail legends predate the Christian mythos and were more or less absorbed into it and became part of it. So without considering that factor, Graham is not going to go anywhere. But he says... um, Uh, There was one such artifact, an ointment jar, which disappeared, then was refound. When the story of the jar's discovery broke in the Italian press in the August of that year, 1995, it ignited immediately a controversy. It began with Rocco Zingaro di Fernandino, or Fernando, the Grand Master of a secret society claiming descent from the ancient crusaders, the Knights Templar, holding a press conference in Rome. Zingaro claimed to possess the true grail and produced an ornate stone cup as proof. So much did the story of the two grails dominate the Italian media that it sparked a rumpus within the church itself. The Italian cathedrals at Genoa and Lucca also came forward with their conflicting claims to possess the real holy grail. And the squabbling became even international when the Spanish cathedral of Valencia joined in with its claim to house the sacred relic. So at this point, Graham was considering to write, writing a follow-up book, and he came across a reference to the so-called secret archives of the Vatican, which are supposedly Vatican records to which very few church officials have access. They are said to contain all sorts of ancient documents concerning events in church history that the Vatican kept secret. So he wrote to the Vatican Library asking if they could confirm or deny the existence of the archives and didn't expect to hear back. However, he did get a letter. Father Rincinelli had trained as a historian at Oxford University before he was ordained and had long been fascinated by the Grail legend. So Father Rincinelli wrote to Graham and said he wanted to meet him 
and even offered to show him the secret archives. So, Graham then tells us a little bit of the history of Christianity. Uh, Christianity was created essentially by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Uh, It was a peculiar irony that Christianity and its message of peace and goodwill should have been so furthered by a man who history records as a tyrant and a murderer. I think everybody knows the story of Constantine being converted by supposedly a sign in the sky, uh, which has more recently been shown to have probably been a meteorite or uh, an asteroid that that crashed down in what was the Apennines in the mountains, and that it happened right around the time that uh, Constantine was on his march. And this is very likely what he saw. So he didn't see a divine sign from God. What he saw was a an asteroid or a meteorite. But in any event, so he converted to Christianity or claimed to have converted to Christianity, but the real truth was was that he needed a religion to to control his people. It was a political move. Years after his so-called conversion, Constantine murdered his own son and had his wife boiled alive in her bath. But in any event, Christianity as we know it was created as an act of political expediency. He needed to unite the empire and since his domineering mother, the Empress Helena, had already embraced Christianity, that was what he picked. So first, before he could use Christianity to unite his empire, he had to unite the Christians, because there were all different kinds of Christians. There were many groups with many practices, with many Gospels, and they all had different ideas. There were Gnostics, and there were Ebionites, and, and there were Diocetists, and there were uh, Monophysites, etc., So in A.D. 325, Constantine summoned all the Christian leaders to his palace at Nicaea, which is now Turkey, for a council. After weeks of wrangling, Constantine appointed his political ally Eusebius, the head of the church at Caesarea at Palestine, to draft a compromise settlement. What Eusebius came up with were, in essence, the religious dogmas which still remain the central pillars of the established church. Nearly everyone present objected to something, and Constantine lost patience and decreed that anyone who refused to sign the agreement would be banished from the empire. And he enforced his ruling. Those who dissented were never heard from again, and those who conceded became the hierarchy of the universal or Catholic church. So that's basically how Christianity came to be. Now, the problem is that as Graham continues to talk with his uh, father, Rincinelli. He gets inside the so-called secret archives of the Vatican. And Father Rincinelli tells him the archives were secret once, and that's how they got their name. But in 1883, Pope Leo XIII declared that the papacy had nothing to fear from history and opened the archives to scholars. Yeah, like we're going to believe that? (laughs) But in any event, There was something that Father Rincinelli read in the secret archives and what he said to Graham Phillips. Now, Graham Phillips, I I understand, did not actually get to sit around in the archives and read stuff. But this remark was made to him by this Father Rincinelli, who said to him, Have you considered a possible link between the Holy Grail and the Holy Mother? He said, I found a rather interesting reference concerning the Grail in the archives. And then he goes on to explain that even though the Bible makes no reference to the event of the ascension of Mary, old church tradition holds that the Virgin Mary ascended bodily into heaven. 
More progressive members of the church consider the story a myth and that Mary's mortal remains would have been interred according to contemporary custom. The Catholic world remained divided on this issue until very recently, and it was left up to the individual churchgoers to make up their own minds. In 1950, however, the assumption was declared dogma by Pope Pius XII. From then on, Mary's bodily ascension into heaven became official church doctrine. The new doctrine meant that, unlike other saints, Mary's mortal remains were not to be found anywhere on earth. This left the church with a problem. Because just to the east of Jerusalem in the Valley of Jehoshaphat is a dark underground shrine which for centuries had been regarded as the Virgin's tomb. It was discovered in AD 517 by Severus, the Bishop of Antioch, and did contain a number of bones. And I should mention here that Severus got the information that this was Mary's tomb from a dream, so we can't really put too much reliance on that. But in any event, in the 1950s, they sent somebody out to, to check these, these relics out because they were afraid that the shrine would be used by critics of the church to undermine the credibility of the papacy, the papacy having just declared Mary uh, as having been ascended to heaven. So Giovanni Benedetti, an archaeologist attached to the Vatican, was sent to examine the relics, presumably in the hope of proving them fake. Much to the relief of the Vatican, the relics turned out to be sheep's bones. Oh, phew. Gosh, tragedy, huh? Divine intervention. Exactly. So when, when uh, the archaeologist Giovanni Benedetti reported back on his findings, he was summoned to appear before one of the most powerful departments in the Vatican, the Holy Inquisition. Now, although the Holy Inquisition has been renamed the Holy Office since 1908, the High Court of Orthodoxy is still, even today, very much in the business of ferreting out heretics and something of its sinister reputation still clings to its offices. And I believe Dan Brown refers to the, to the Holy Office in his book. The Inquisition may no longer have the power to burn dissenters at the stake, but it does wield the authority to censor the church writings and to excommunicate any Catholic who it deems to have offended the faith. On pain of excommunication, Benedetti was instructed to discontinue his work and was forbidden to publish or speak publicly about his research. Being a good Catholic, he complied. And here we come back to Father Rincinelli, who's talking to Graham Phillips. Father Rincinelli had found the minutes of the meeting of Benedetti's appearance before the Holy Office of the Inquisition and had read them. Apparently, one of the things that had been said in this was that Father Rincinelli found something in the report which intrigued him. It seems that Benedetti had spoken to someone about his theory because the minutes showed that he had been specifically instructed to clarify a remark that he had made. Father Rincinelli took a notebook from his pocket, says Graham Phillips, and read his translation of the relevant reference, which said, Benedetti's statement that the Holy Mother was the Holy Grail should be properly clarified so that no improper inference should be made. Namely that the grail was merely an artistic representation of the Holy Mother. Now, this uh, is an interesting remark because it seems that they're moving a little bit closer to the truth here. Because there is the whole question of the Virgin Mary, the devotion to Mary, 
the veneration of the virgin and, and the veneration of the virgin and and the mother has is is extremely ancient it predates christianity it has become a central theme in the catholic theology and to a billion catholics or so mary is the most important woman who ever lived so this leads us to another interesting thing now remember that remark that the grail was merely an artistic representation of the holy mother now, let's get a little bit further in this. The idea of the virgin birth appears to have arisen from a simple mistranslation. Around A.D. 130, when the Bible was translated into Greek and Latin, mistakes were made. One such mistake had been the word now rendered as virgin. The original text did not employ the Hebrew word for virgin. It used instead the word meaning a young woman. Now, let's look at something that's a little bit more interesting, keeping in mind that these Hellenic or Hellenistic myths that surrounded the story of Jesus came from from northern Syria, and that we've got the idea that the Holy Grail is an artistic representation of the Virgin Mother or the Mother. Now, if you look at some other ideas that exist in that same area of the world, such as ideas that have been carried for millennia, it seems, from most ancient times, and that now exist within Sufism, which is under the aegis of Islam at the present time, but it existed long before Islam, there is the idea that, that nature is the highest and greatest mother. Nature gives birth to all things, though she herself is never seen. She is the receptivity that allows the existent things to become manifest. And we begin to understand why the idea of the grail, a receptacle, a cup, a bowl, a platter, from ancient times, predating Christianity, was a representation of nature. And here's what... uh, Here's what uh, the the Sufis or the Sufi Sheikh Ibn al-Arabi had to say about nature. Though nature is viewed primarily as receptivity, both activity and receptivity or the quality of being acted upon are manifested through it. Nature is receptive to that which instills form into it. The forms that are instilled may be active or receptive, male or female, yang or yin. Sometimes Ibn al-Arabi shifts the point of view from which he considers nature and sees it as an active instead of a receptive principle. So from one other point of view, nature is darkness, since that which acts upon it is either God, through his command, the word, or the spirit, which are light. And yet the shaykh insists that the nature is at the root is also a kind of light, or else it could not begin to display its properties in the spiritual world between the universal soul and the dust of primal matter. He says the true darkness is the unseen since it is neither perceived nor does perception take place through it. Thus, nature also, though it may be called darkness in relation to the spirit which infuses it with life, is light in relation to absolute nothingness. So nature is the highest and greatest mother is a kind of blackness. And we think once again of some items in the Bible such as the Song of Solomon where where the... um, so-called hieroscamos is being acted out and the and the female voice says i am black but comely my lord and we come to understand that these are 
allegories for a very great spiritual secret. And that's what we're going to talk about, this great spiritual secret that is part of a myth that was created to convey secrets, and it became a history wrapped around a man who may or may not have known this secret and may or may not have activated it in his own life. We're going to leave it there for this week. As Laura has just mentioned, um, we're going to continue our discussion next week of this great secret, the true meaning or true origins of Christianity and the true symbols within Christianity and all great religions. So thank you for joining us. For more information, come to our site, www.signs-of-the-times.org, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.